Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number six, Exploring the Client's Preferred Future, part one. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on Leading from Behind. In this episode, we'll begin to examine how, in solution-focused therapy, we elicit the client's ideas about a preferred future, a time when the problems or concerns are no longer getting in the way and something different is happening instead. Now, the exploration of the client's preferred future is a very significant part of a first session in solution-focused therapy. So we're going to spend several episodes looking at the questions, skills, and techniques used during this part of the session. Now in this particular episode, we'll begin by looking in detail at the first question that begins this focus on the client's preferred future. Then we'll start to look at some of the key follow-up questions that help in gaining a clear and useful description of what the client wants. And as usual, we'll close this episode with a look at some resources that may be of interest to new solution-focused practitioners. So, once again, welcome to Leading From Behind, episode number six. I hope you'll find it useful. After the initial part of a first session in solution-focused therapy, we would have generally accomplished the following. First, we know about the client's best hope from the conversation. We've heard about the problems that brought the client through the door and how these show up in the client's life. And third, we've learned something about how the client has coped or managed in the face of these problems. And finally, we know something about pre-session change, the improvements that have already occurred for the client between the time of making and attending the appointment. So at this point, we're ready to make a significant shift into an exploration of the client's preferred future. Now, in solution-focused practice, we set the stage for this conversation by asking a future-focused question. For our purposes, we'll be looking at the use of the miracle question, although we certainly acknowledge that there are other future-focused questions used by some solution-focused therapists. During the creation of the solution-focused approach, Steve DeShazer, Insu Kimberg, and their colleagues at the Brief Family Therapy Center in Milwaukee developed the miracle question as a means of inviting clients to consider what might be different when their problems were resolved. And of course, the development of this question didn't happen overnight. They asked this question with a vast number of clients, observing what worked and didn't work in seeking useful answers. In time, the miracle question became recognized as one of the unique elements of the approach. And for most practitioners, it remains an extremely helpful tool in beginning the conversation with clients about their preferred futures. So, to begin our look at the miracle question, let's go back to our case example from the previous episode. This is a first-session conversation with a woman named Rachel. We've already heard that her best hope from our conversation is to get back to where she was three months ago. And we've reached a point in the session where we want to explore her preferred future. So, here is how I express the miracle question to Rachel. So, Rachel, I'd like to ask you... Kind of a strange question. Takes a bit of imagination to think about. Let's suppose that tonight, after you leave here today, and hopefully have some kind of pleasant rest of the day and evening, and 
Later on tonight, you go to sleep as usual, and you sleep well. And while you're sleeping, a miracle happens. And the miracle is that the problems or concerns that brought you here today were solved. But because you're sleeping, you have no idea that this miracle has happened. Let's suppose that tomorrow, after you woke up and began to go about your day and your life, what is it that you might begin to notice that would tell you that this miracle had happened? Now, there's a few things to note about the asking of the miracle question. First, it's important to ask the question slowly, inserting pauses here and there to invite the client's engagement and hopefully create a sense of anticipation. Secondly, note the use of the word suppose. The intention here is to evoke the client's imagination and invite a move away from problem talk toward what's wanted instead. And finally, the client's presenting concerns are mentioned only in a vague way in this case as the problems and concerns that brought you here have been solved, rather than something very specific like your low mood, anger, and frustration is gone. This is quite intentional so that the client is able to consider her preferred future in the broadest possible way. This, of course, is consistent with the solution-focused position that people's unique solutions don't necessarily have to have any relationship to their specific problems. Now, once the miracle question has been asked, a far more significant portion of the conversation takes place. This is where the solution-focused therapist uses a variety of questions and skills in eliciting the details of the client's description of the preferred future. So, let's listen to Rachel's very first response to the miracle question. So, Rachel, what would be the first small but meaningful sign that this miracle had happened? Well... I guess when I woke up, I I wouldn't feel so worn out. Our task following the miracle question is to elicit descriptions from the client that are specific, realistic, achievable, behavioral, and reflect the presence of something rather than the absence of something. Now, Rachel's first reply has a very common characteristic. She identifies the absence of something. In this case, she wouldn't feel so worn out. So my next question seeks a description of the presence of something else. And so what would you notice instead? Well, I would wake up with some energy, you know, ready to take on my day. So Rachel has responded with the presence of something. She'd wake up with some energy and be ready to take on her day. Now, her answer isn't very specific or reflects any particular behavioral characteristics. So this response invites our first opportunity to engage in the deconstruction of her language. I know what waking up with energy might mean for me, and you probably have your own ideas about what it means to you. But from our not-knowing position in solution-focused practice, we really have no idea what having energy and being ready to take on the day means to Rachel. And how would that show itself? Oh, I would uh, get up right away, you know, rather than hitting the snooze button. And then I'd go get some breakfast and, and eat something decent for a change. So by asking Rachel how this energy would show itself, I've invited her to describe something specific and behavioral. 
Now we know that the first thing having energy and being ready to take on the day means to her is that she would eat a healthy breakfast. Now my next task is to amplify Rachel's idea about how starting her day in this way would uniquely make a difference to her. And how would this help if you, if you got up right away and ate a decent breakfast? Well, it would be like I used to be. You know, for a while now, I just have so much trouble getting going. I can just barely make it out the door on time, and then I end up grabbing coffee and some, you know, baked crap on the way to work. And so, what, what good things would come from this? Well, I, I know it would be good for my health and my weight to eat better in the morning, and I'd probably be more relaxed when I get to work. Now, as mundane as these details might seem, what we've already achieved here is for Rachel to hear the sound of her own voice, as well as her own expertise. In some ways, this is the essence of leading from behind. I'm not telling Rachel that it's good for her to get up right away and eat a healthy breakfast. It's the questions that are being asked and invite her to clarify what she wants for herself and her good reasons for wanting it. Now, it's also important to note here that each question I'm asking is more or less following on the last thing that the client said. This is typical of the back and forth of solution-focused conversations. So, Rachel's last reply indicated that she would be more relaxed when she got to work. And, of course, this is where we would continue with the conversation. Again, we'd spend some time deconstructing the word relaxed and then amplify the difference this would make to her. Now, the largest portion of a good first session in solution-focused therapy is often spent in this conversation about the client's preferred future. As a result, it's important to move slowly. And so, when one line of questioning about what the client would notice seems to end, the solution-focused therapist continues to ask about what else the client would notice as this miracle unfolded. So, Rachel, as, as time continues, what else would you notice that would tell you that some kind of miracles happened here? My boss would show me more respect. I'd get my old responsibilities back. You know, the ones that she took away while I was off work. And what difference would this make to you? Oh, a big difference. I mean, I'm not saying I'm the best in the world, but I'm very good at my job. And after I was off sick, it seemed like that I was, all of that was forgotten. So, Rachel's reply illustrates another common challenge during the conversation about the client's preferred future. She says someone, in this case her boss, will do something different. This is clearly important to her, and it's worth amplifying how the change would make a difference. But what her boss might do differently certainly moves the conversation away from anything that Rachel has any explicit control over. So, it's important then to move the questioning back to what Rachel might do. So... How would you react then if, if your boss showed you more respect and returned these responsibilities to you? Oh, I would show more effort for sure. I mean, I'm not slacking off right now, but I definitely don't care about my job as much as I used to. And so how would that show itself? When, when you care more and show more effort at work? Um, I, I don't know. So, the conversation has moved back to Rachel's actions, and once again she's replied in a manner that demands some deconstruction. In this case, an understanding of what effort at work means to her. But in responding to this question about effort, Rachel says something that we hear fairly often in solution-focused conversations. She says, I don't know. 
Now, in solution-focused practice, we recognize that I don't know is an understandable reply. The questions we ask in solution-building conversations often require some thought and consideration. At the same time, as a solution-focused practitioner, I believe that my client has expertise about her own life and has the capacity to know. So when we hear, I don't know, there's a number of ways for the solution-focused therapist to respond. First, we can say nothing at all and allow some silence in the room and allow the client some time to think. We like to think of this as the shut-up-and-wait approach. Secondly, we can agree with the client by saying something like, Yes, that's a very hard question. And then once again, shut up and wait for the client's next response. And finally, we could ask the following. What's your best guess? Well, I guess I would show more initiative. You know, getting things done before they have to be done. Or look for ways of improving things. By asking the client for her best guess, there's an implicit risk-free invitation to know. More often than not, our clients will move from I don't know to here's what I think I might know. Now, of course, there are certainly times when I don't know really means I don't know. But even in these instances, we would take the position that perhaps we haven't asked the right question. So we would still reframe the question in a different way in order to seek a more useful answer. So in this particular instance, I might ask Rachel, so suppose I had a video of you while you were at work. What is it that I might notice that would tell me that you're making an effort? So in summary, in this episode, we've looked at the miracle question as a way to set the stage for the exploration of Rachel's preferred future. We've also examined the important follow-up questions that invite descriptions of what she wants for herself that are specific, achievable, behavioral, and reflect the presence of something rather than the absence of something. In particular, we've identified the importance of deconstructing language into behavioral detail, amplifying the client's ideas about change, and responding to the understandable I don't know that we hear from our clients. Now, in Episode 7, we'll return to this examination of follow-up questions as we continue to ask, what else? We'll also take a look at the use of relationship questions as yet another way of eliciting further descriptions of the client's preferred future. In this episode's resource segment, we'd like to shine a light on the work of Yvonne Dolan. She's been a major contributor to the field of solution-focused therapy in a number of different ways. For over 20 years, Yvonne Dolan studied and collaborated with Inzu Kimberg and Steve DeShazer. She's also a co-founder of the Solution-Focused Brief Therapy Association and also a past president. In addition to being a lecturer, trainer, and solution-focused therapist, Yvonne Dolan is also the author of numerous books about the practice of solution-focused therapy. Her work includes the following. Resolving Sexual Abuse, published in 1991. One Small Step, Moving Beyond Trauma and Therapy to a Life of Joy, published in 2000. Tales of Solutions, a collection of hope-inspiring stories, co-authored with Insu Kimberg and published in 2001. Solution-Focused Brief Therapy, Its Effective Use in Agency Settings, co-authored with Terry Pichot and published in 2003. And finally, she was also a co-author of a book mentioned in a previous episode, More Than Miracles, The State of the Art of Solution-Focused Brief Therapy, published in 2007. 
So that's it for the resources on this episode. If you'd like us to mention a book, website, or training opportunity relating to solution-focused practice, simply leave a comment on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca or send an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining us. As mentioned earlier, in Episode 7, we'll continue with Part 2 of our examination of the questions, skills, and techniques used in exploring the client's preferred future. Now, just as a reminder, new episodes of Leading From Behind will be available on or about the 15th and 30th of each month. You can find the show notes for each episode, which include any web links mentioned on the program, on the podcast page at the Halifax Brief Therapy Centre website at hbtc.ca. You can also subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. Simply follow the link on the podcast page of our website or look for us in the training subcategory of the education section on the iTunes store. Subscription, of course, is free and you'll be able to download the podcast to your computer, tablet or mobile device. Again, if you'd like to give us some feedback about the podcast, you can send us an email to feedback at hbtc.ca or leave a comment on the podcast page at hbtc.ca. In closing, my thanks to my colleague, Debbie Van Horn, for her valuable assistance in our case example. And of course, thanks to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. The music used in this episode is entitled Seven Skies. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, episode number six. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join us again.